This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, the legal research platform chosen by over 40,000 legal organizations for the tradition of editorial excellence combined with the most advanced technology. Learn more at westlawnext.com. This August will mark the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights March on Washington. Much has changed since then, but many say more needs to be done. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and that's what we're discussing today on the ABA Journal podcast. Joining me are David Corr, a recently retired Northern District of Illinois judge and an Alabama native, who in 1970 began his legal career with the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. Julius Chambers, a North Carolina lawyer who over the years has argued and won numerous landmark civil rights cases. And Eleanor Holmes Norton, a lawyer and a Washington, D.C. congresswoman who was the first woman to head the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. How do you think your experience of being active in the civil rights movement, how did that help you with your career later in life? Mr. Chambers, do you want to take that one first? You know, I, my involvement with civil rights efforts goes back a long way. I wanted to go to uh, a major school in North Carolina, and at that time, they were not admitting black students. So I couldn't go to the schools, largely because of my race. And I never got over it. And I looked at uh, job possibilities after I finished uh, school, and I saw barriers that prohibited me from uh, getting a job. I uh, also wanted to uh, do some things that I just couldn't do because I was black. So I had a personal interest in getting involved in civil rights, and I... uh, uh, was excited that we were able to succeed with a lot of those efforts. Judge Kaur, how do you think your experience with the civil rights movement helped your career later in life? I suppose I didn't really have a, a, a sense of the responsibility of being an attorney until I started representing plaintiffs in civil rights cases. Uh, I remember a case where, uh, a demonstration case, where one of the demonstrators was well, uh, needed to get get out of jail. The kids were going to jail and staying there. And uh, one of the, the students' fathers had a heart attack. And I had to go over to the courthouse to uh, to get her released. At the time that, uh, that this was at the same time that a white defendant in a criminal case was having a hearing, uh, about an, an incident with one of the demonstrators, and the, the courthouse was uh, crowded with his supporters. And I'd, I'd been in the military. I thought I had heard every swear word in, 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 in the world. And uh, as I walked through the hall, I think I was called some new names. I hadn't heard those before. Uh, and it, it was not some place I really relished being, and, and, and had it been just me, I probably would have not gone. But, uh, you know, I was the lawyer. I was the only lawyer there representing the demonstrators. And this was something that had to be done. And so you put aside your, any personal fear you, uh, you had because that was your responsibility. That was your job. And I don't think I really had an appreciation for that until that incident. Okay. And Congresswoman, how about you? Well, you know, I think all three of us, <laughs> uh, perhaps not coincidentally, were informed in our careers by living with racism and racial discrimination. And you certainly didn't have to 
do that in order to find to be a civil rights lawyer, and there were many civil rights lawyers who had not had that experience, who were deeply committed and contributed immensely to the movement. But the three lawyers you have uh, <laughs> you're talking to today mm-hmm. had that experience. Uh, in terms of informing my own career personally, I now represent the District of Columbia, which does not have the same rights as every other American citizen. So if I regarded myself as an underdog when I was in the civil rights movement, uh, that was terrific preparation for representing uh, a city who's had a crusade for more than 200 years to get full and equal rights, rights that we now have in all the southern states and that are truncated here. So I would say when we were in the movement, it was literally uh, uh, a movement against the odds. That was the best preparation I can think of for for representing my hometown, the District of Columbia. (laughs) I'm also curious, and perhaps, Congresswoman, you can take this first. Uh, You all built, you know, obviously very impressive careers growing up in segregation. What sort of help and advice did you get from family and friends coming up that you think really, really benefited you in your personal quest to do what you wanted to do? Well, I don't in in my case, uh, I was born and raised in the District of Columbia where there was great consciousness about civil rights, great resentment to uh, segregation. Though I didn't go to Howard, uh, it is important uh, to recognize the district for what it was. It was the city where there there was uh, Howard University, which is one of the leading African-American universities. There was a cadre of black intellectuals, and there was a deep ferment, but no movement. So in a real sense, it was it, it, it growing up in, in this city, which is a little different from growing up in other southern cities, and this is a city below the Mason-Dixon line, as they say, a uh, little different because there were not signs that said white and colored. You could ride anywhere on the buses. But the schools were segregated. The district was one of the uh, Brown versus Board of Education set of cases. And the public accommodations were segregated. And the segregation was done by the most powerful of entities, the Congress of the United States. Growing up with racism, official racism from on high, with three commissioners appointed by the president in charge of the city, with no home rule, no, no right to vote for a mayor or a city council, no local democracy, no right to vote for president. There was uh, a real consciousness in the black community and in the District of Columbia. But this is not where the civil rights began. It it began where the outward and visible signs of, of discrimination were in your face every day. And Judge Corr, being an Alabama native, perhaps you'd like to take the question next. I mean, can you tell me what sort of advice and guidance did you get in dealing with segregation? Well, I, I remember when I was, oh, I must have been younger than 10, driving past uh, the state fairgrounds. And the state fairgrounds had Ferris wheels and carousels and, and all those things that uh, there was no equivalent black facility. And uh, I was in a car with my mother, my father, and my younger sister and brother. And I think my sister said, I want to go there. Uh, why don't we stop and go there? And I, and I remember this look that my father gave my mother at the time. 
because it was a conversation that uh, every black parent had to have with their children, that there are some things that are forbidden uh, to you. And I'll, I'll never forget that look. But my parents believed that, uh, and they taught us, that uh, education was the answer to just about every question. And uh, I grew up in Alabama in the 50s. Uh, I finished elementary school and high school. I uh, finished high school in, the six, in 1960. Uh, and it was a, it, it, I think people understood that segregation was going to fall. Uh, and they were optimistic as to what the results of that would be. They, they didn't quite know exactly what it would look like, but they, they knew that, that uh, segregation was on its last legs. And so uh, parents, teachers, uh, ministers uh, all taught pretty much the same thing, that, that uh, there are going to be great opportunities out there for you. Uh, you just have to make sure that you're prepared to, uh, to accept them once they, once they get here. Mr. Chambers, what advice do you have for young black lawyers who would like a career like yours someday? Well, there are different issues facing people today, and they're not all racial, nor are they all gender-based. And there are opportunities now, like there were for me, for people to get involved and provide assistance for people who were challenging uh, deprivation of their rights uh, because of race or color. And we've made a lot of progress, and I think that's what this panel is telling you now. But there are still major issues facing minorities and women, and there's a need for lawyers to become involved to provide assistance because a lot of people are there uh, begging for help. I was telling a group of friends the other day that I was thinking back to the 1960s when a group of people came to visit me and wanted to uh, bring a lawsuit to try to open up opportunities for blacks uh, working with a major paper company in the eastern part of North Carolina. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any uh, idea about how they should go about doing what they really wanted to do. And I must say that uh, we lawyers also didn't know. But we wanted to provide assistance, and we ventured out and ended up with a case called Moody versus Albemarle Paper Company. And it really opened up employment opportunities for minorities in uh, eastern North Carolina and really across the uh, country. There are similar opportunities today, not just with uh, minorities, uh, but uh, with others who are being uh, deprived. And I was recounting that uh, early story because a group of people came to me more recently and asked for help, and I realized that they just didn't have the resources they needed in order to uh, protect their rights and opportunities. And... Uh, that's true today, not only in uh, employment, but uh, in e education and area, just about every other area that uh, we faced in the 1960s. Uh, so there, for the young lawyers today, there are a number of opportunities still there begging for uh, assistance. And if people step back and, and think a moment, they would appreciate quickly that uh, they just aren't the resources there now to provide the legal assistance needed to uh, protect rights and opportunities. 
a slightly different topic, but I think it's somewhat relevant. I'm also curious what the three of you think about the pending cases on how the government uses technology and surveillance. The government did a lot of that during the civil rights movement. Uh, do any of you have thoughts on that you'd like to share? Well, I, I think you have to always keep in mind the, the, the reasons why we have a First Amendment in the first place. And, and that is to protect people's right to express themselves and their right to organize. Uh, it, it was not unusual in the, uh, during the Civil Rights Movement for there to be surveillance of demonstrators. Anybody who is a disliked minority runs the risk of being surveilled and, and, and punished uh, for expressing those views, uh, both in terms of the, their, their right to speak and their right to organize. So uh, this is uh, we are, we have to be mindful of of, of the surveillance methods. The, the the war on drugs has created a perfect opportunity for the government to, to have an excuse to go in and 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 spy on people. Uh, then the war on terrorism, uh, if there, if you need it anymore, provides uh, an additional excuse. And for people who express political opinions especially unpopular political opinions uh, in this country, I think we have to be very mindful of, 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 of the origins of the First Amendment and, and the need to keep the government uh, in its proper place, and that is not to suppress rightful expression. Okay. Well, I certainly agree that, that uh, these cases that were up in an entirely different context uh, present uh, great challenges for those of us who saw what government intrusion can do to a movement, this is very different. But I, we're living already with the right to surveil without a warrant and without the other side even knowing what is going on since the, the so-called war on terrorism began, and that has survived constitutional attack. So we're already way away from where we were even 10 years ago, or at least before 9-11, the new technology is challenging all the old assumptions about what privacy is. Uh, and it is, a, it is going to be a great challenge for the court to somehow understand that, that this is a different period and at the same time protect rights which have never had this kind of challenge before. Congresswoman, I'm curious what you think about the issue of it seems like what well, doesn't seem like. I mean, clearly law school tuition is rising a lot. The job market is not great. What do you think those two things will mean for diversity in the legal profession? My views on, on this may not be in keeping with my colleagues where I still teach a course. I, was, I, I retained my tenure at Georgetown University Law School by teaching one course there every year where students pay a lifetime <laughs> in debt by the time they graduate. And they're from a law school where more of them have a chance of getting a job than perhaps the average lawyer. I just hope that in this generation of bright young people, they look beyond the traditional professions. I mean, when immigrants came to this country, perhaps in the second generation, they became doctors and lawyers, and, and that's what everybody wanted to be. Well, blacks just got the opportunity to become doctors and lawyers in any fair number uh, with the civil rights movement. Much as I welcome young people into the practice of law, it does seem to me that lawyers have to be very, very careful 
about simply saying to people, yeah, why don't you go to law school like me, knowing what rising tuition means, and I think law schools need to be hammered uh, on continually raising tuition, uh, and knowing what the job market is likely to be. And I'm not talking about the present recession. I am talking about the changes, and, and my colleagues can talk about this better than I can, but changes in the practice of law itself where the kinds of retainers, lawyers, at least in big firms, who are accustomed to getting are no longer available. Business looks around and forces lawyers to compete for business. Civil rights cannot employ all the young aspiring lawyers. They need to know that those who go into private practice can still do civil rights pro bono, can still help poor people pro bono. And they need to look around at where their talents may be used across the board now that we've had a civil rights movement which has opened up so many more professions and were available for our generation of African Americans. I couldn't agree more with the Congresswoman. I, I was at a conference in uh, Cameroon, West Africa, a few years ago, and uh, I met some brilliant young uh, African lawyers when I was there. But at the conference, they spent most of their time complaining about the lack of business. And uh, I, I was shocked uh, that here you had an, an African country uh, and African lawyers couldn't get business. And it, and it occurred to me that the problem was with the economy, that there were that the law was siphoning off uh, a lot of the talent that would be that everybody would be better off uh, had those some of those people uh, gone to uh, the business school. Booker T. Washington years ago understood that black lawyers were a business that the law was a business. And so when he organized the first business groups, uh, lawyers were part of it. The, 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 the National Bar Association grew out of Booker T. Washington's old organization. Uh, but they thought the business people were too conservative, so they split off into their own organization. Black lawyers are going to struggle until black business is more successful. Segregation killed uh, black entrepreneurs. And uh, the, what, what happens is that you have uh, lawyers, black lawyers, Hispanic lawyers, uh, Asian lawyers, uh, graduating from the same law schools that everybody else in the big firms graduate from. But as associates, they're dependent on the senior people in the firm to feed them business. And for uh, the whole host of reasons, they aren't, they aren't being able to to get enough business to keep them uh, in the firms. So uh, I, I think that uh, we'd all be better off, uh, the country would be better off if, if, if the legal profession didn't drain off so much of, uh, of the real talent in the country. Well, do you think, Judge, uh, stepping off of that, I know there's a lot has been said about how firms are trying to have better diversity, and it seems to me it's not getting better. There's a lot that's said about it, but rarely is diversity improving at large firms. I think for many of the reasons you just talked about. For a young lawyer of color who wants a successful career in private practice, do you think he or she might be better off, you know, after a few years, focusing on building his or her own firm as opposed to joining one of these white shoe firms that at one point was really a feather in your cap, but you're not seeing a lot of Associates of color getting promoted to partners at those firms, it seems. If, if, if the black economy was in better shape, I would agree with you. 
Mm-hmm. But to form their own firms, they have to have clients. And uh, with the, the poverty level uh, among black people, we, we were a lot, don't get me wrong, we're a lot better off than we were in the 50s and 60s uh, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, income. Uh, but still, uh, there are an awful lot of people out there who can't really afford to pay market rates for legal services. And so, uh, and in the absence of substantial black businesses, they're going to struggle. They're going to struggle that there are too many lawyers to serve uh, too small a clientele. And I agree with you about the law firms. Uh, the, the law firms, black associates are not surviving in the law firms. Uh, the law firms tend to pay lip service to diversity, but they don't put any muscle behind it. If I go to a, a majority law firm uh, and I'm hired as an associate, uh, nobody's accountable for my success in the firm. And so, I, you know, after a while, I, I don't get a lot of business. Uh, I don't get a lot of cases uh, pushed my way. And um, before too long, you know, people look at me funny and say, well, what are your hours? And so eventually I get the message that it's time to move on. It, it's been true since the 60s that the best route for success in, in, in the big law firms for minority lawyers is, is a lateral move. Go to the government, get some expertise in a particular area, and then come into the firm laterally. Uh, but going up the, corporate, going up the, uh, the law firm ladder is, is, is almost as difficult today as it was uh, 30 years ago. All right. Mr. Chambers, would you like to add anything to that? Uh, I guess hope that we are doing much better than what the panel is suggesting. There are some real problems, I know, still there, and there are some problems that we aren't going to resolve today. I know that there are still uh, some major issues with race, and I know that a lot of the young lawyers coming out are facing uh, problems they don't want to even think of in terms of race but they will have to because that's the only way they're going to be able to solve the problems. But uh, I don't want to leave the impression that we, that I at least think that uh, we haven't made any progress. We have made some hell of a progress, and I think we'll be making more in the years to come. You know, I, if I could just say I agree with Julius Chambers that, you know, you will see at least some black lawyers in top firms, very few, the judge is also right, though. It's very difficult if, to come up that route, and many of them are lateral. But they're very, very talented lawyers who are getting an opportunity. If your heart is in it, I would really encourage it. But I'll give you an example. Susan Rice, who is, is now, the, uh, uh, of course, the U.N. secretary, had finished college, and she had all kinds of offers to go to the law school, offers to go abroad on scholarships. And she came to see me. I was then full-time professor at Georgetown. And I, I said to her, this is, she's extraordinarily talented. She excelled in everything she did. I, I said, Susan, this is really what you want to do? Because I can tell you this much, with your interest in international affairs, I would love to see more bright young uh, African Americans in that field. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. But you've got to do what really makes sense to you. You know, I see her from time to time now in Washington. <laughs> and she's so glad she didn't go to law school. She doesn't know what to do. <laughs> so people have to think seriously about what they are suited for. 
and whether they are ready for the long uh, trudge. Uh, I mean, it can cost you $50,000 to go to a year to go to a good law school, and you've got to pay that back. And this makes some lawyers not interested any longer in pro bono work or civil rights work because as it is, they'll be in hock for a good part of their lives. So they've got to think about their whole lives. Not just do what I did because I did it, whoever I happen to be. Let's switch gears again uh, a bit. And, uh, Congresswoman, I'm going to ask you first, having a two-term black president in our country, what does that mean, do you think, and say about the status of civil rights in the United States? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Okay. (laughs) Can you expand on that for me? Yeah. The president is the leader of the country, he can make a real difference in what he says, and he does have power to do things that nobody else has. But it is a big mistake to think that his really extraordinary individual achievement has much to say about civil rights. What will it tell us about the voting rights case before the Supreme Court or the Texas affirmative action case before the court? The president has to be very careful, perhaps less careful than he had to be in his first term. But because he is black, because he has a background in reaching out uh, particularly to to African Americans and and his poor people, there will be uh, many in this country who will doubt that he has everybody's interest at heart. So we've got to help the president. (laughs) I'm in a congressional black caucus. We're always pushing the president to do more. I'm not not so much concerned about his saying more. I'm concerned about his doing more because African Americans have suffered so horrendously from this recession, which he had nothing to do about. But he's got to do more. And I don't think the fact that he has achieved a second term, which it seems to me was was indispensable for us to make any progress, says much about the state of civil rights in the United States today. That's going to take a whole uh, boatload of people to move, including the traditional civil rights movement, African Americans themselves, lawyers, the Congressional Black Caucus, it's just not on his shoulders alone. And as we've seen, uh, there were times when he made a real difference, for example, with the DREAM Act, with Hispanics. Very important that he was able to move ahead on matters like that with uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell. You know, there were things like that. Well, there are no things like that for for African Americans that he can do. Most of it has to do with money and with uh, that kind of opportunity. Judge Cora, what do you think? When I was a college student in the early 60s, uh, I attended a, a lecture by uh, Ayn Rand, and uh, she said that there would not be a black president within uh, the lifetime of anybody in that room. And I got up and walked out. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I hope she's rolling over in a grave because it did happen within a lifetime of at least one person in the room, and that's me. Things have changed in the sense that uh, we, we have a black president. A majority of people in this country, I think, uh, no longer would vote against somebody just because of the color of their skin. That having been said, I think that, that uh, what we're talking about in the law firms and what we see, at least in the upper uh, levels of many corporations in this country, the stereotypes still exist. One of the themes in this last election was that the the president was incompetent. There were a lot of cold words used during the election. 
that I think uh, played on, uh, on, on stereotypes. Uh, and there's stereotypes about African Americans, there's stereotypes about Hispanics, there's stereotypes about uh, people from the Middle East, stereotypes about Asians, stereotypes about women. And so those still exist. And, and I think that's the real challenge for the future. I don't think that, I think there's less of this type of categorical discrimination that we used to see. It's, it's still there, but I think there's a lot less of that. And, and if, if, if there's a problem for the future, I think the problem is to, is to undermine and, get, and hopefully eventually get rid of uh, those stereotypes because uh, they're still pernicious. Mr. Chambers, what do you think? Well, I really agree with what's been said, but I, my opinion is sort of mixed with the belief that we can change things. I was uh, involved a bit with the last election and going about the countryside talking with people about uh, where they were putting their support and why. I, it it really convinced me that there have been a lot of attitudes that uh, have changed. I remember back in the early days when we were just getting started with civil rights and uh, talking with people, they never would dream of a black president, period. And they never would dream of a black judge. And I, and I, you know, I, I think having uh, President Obama in position now has allowed a lot of people to appreciate that people can make contributions whatever their color or gender. And uh, I, I think it's really been great that we've had uh, this president. I, I know there are some limits in what he can do, a president like that can do, but he's there. And I know one of the things that came up a lot was uh, the appointment to the Supreme Court, uh, appointment judges. And that's extremely important because we could get some terrible people in office who would... Uh, change everything if we didn't have uh, people in uh, various positions. So uh, it's it's been great. And it, I remember back uh, in what I call the early days when uh, we were talking about uh, getting some uh, blacks uh, in position as judges and people saying, well, we they're paying judges enough now to uh, interest a lot of people from all races in uh, appointments to the uh, to the bench. Well, we have that, and uh, it's it's been to me a great advance in uh, everything that we've been doing. I think we still have some problems, and we will continue to have problems. And the young lawyers coming out today can uh, rest assured that if they want to get involved in some. This ABA Journal podcast uh, is brought to you by Westlaw Next. Conduct legal research from any device. Anytime, and anywhere, I even offline, you. with the um, award-winning Westlawnext so iPad app. I appreciate Learn it. Learn more at westlawnext.com.